The scripture for today is Joshua 1, 1 through 9. Please join me in a short prayer for illumination uh, before we read God's word. God, please prepare our hearts to accept your word. Silence in us any voices but your own, so that we may hear your word and also live it out through Christ our Lord. Amen. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. If you haven't been to church in a while, for whatever reason, you may not know I'm preaching through the books of the Bible uh, one at a time, trying to explore what's in them uh, in, in and of itself, what part they have to play in the redemptive history, God's pursuit of his people, and of his ultimate renewal of the entire world. Uh, what's challenging in the book? What's beautiful in the book? Um, Joshua, this is about 25 or 40 years after the Exodus, begins to lead the people of Israel. And one of the things that can be disorienting about the first uh, several books of the Bible is some of them take place over a long period of time, and a lot happens. And some take place almost instantaneously, and a lot happens. So the Exodus is a long period of time if you're looking at Moses' life, but the action of the Exodus is over a relatively short period of time. Leviticus is not a, an historical account, but more so the description of how God knows that our deepest need is to be with him, and he makes provision for us to be able to sense that. But in terms of space and time, 
it really doesn't occupy any. Whereas the book of Numbers, which is far more interesting than many of you think, the Hebrew title is Into the Wilderness. Much more compelling title. I'm not sure why we didn't keep that. Is actually many, many years, between 25 and 40. Uh, while there's a significant amount of, of archaeology that supports almost all of Scripture that, takes, that explains, um, that speaks into an historical time, we don't actually know when the Exodus happened. There are a whole bunch of reasons for that, good ones, um, and then ones that are just lost. Uh, one of the realities of Egyptian history was they did not write any of the bad stories down. <laughs> so to the extent that we believe this is true, it's actually an indirect proof of the Exodus that the Egyptians didn't write it down. So it may have happened in the 13th century BC or the 15th century. In Genesis chapter 15, all that we see in Joshua was predicted and explained, though briefly, by God to Moses. Interesting factoid I didn't realize. Joshua actually has kind of a rough family history. Didn't know that. Nine generations before him, some of his family died because they were cattle thieves. The reason I say that is it's an interesting factoid about Joshua, but we don't actually know a lot about him except the man in action. If you're familiar with the scripture, you know that uh, most of the people we know a lot about in the scripture are pretty tragic messes that God continues to pursue and utilize anyway. Joshua is an exception to that, though he makes some mistakes. Um, I think the reason we don't know as much about Joshua as compared to, say, King David is Joshua humbly followed the Lord. When he was confused, he sought the Lord. When confronted with his sin, he was humble about it immediately. And his humility doesn't mean he didn't think he was strong. It meant he knew he was strong and that strength came from the Lord. So that confidence didn't puff him up, but it allowed him to lead and to serve well. One of my very favorite scenes in any veggie tale is when Joshua meets the commander of the Lord's army. This is from Joshua 10. And if you're familiar with veggie tales, most of them, I think, all of them don't have arms. So Joshua bows down to the commander of the Lord's army and the Lord's army says, and, and Joshua says, are you for us or against us? And the commander of the Lord's army says, none of those. And then Joshua gives fealty to him, but because he's a vegetable laying in the dirt, the commander of the Lord's army cannot hear him. But it's a lovely scene and straight out of Joshua and a reminder of whose battle this was. And it's also a little bit of a reminder to us that the Lord chooses his leaders and, and the way that he chooses them is pursuing them in relationship. He asks Joshua in that moment, or the commander of the Lord's army, asks Joshua to take off his shoes, which reminds us, perhaps at the beginning of Exodus, the bush that was behaving oddly in that it was on fire but not being consumed. What we do know about Joshua from this book is that he was confident in God's character. And one of the reasons was, and we could miss this if we don't read, especially the middle of Numbers carefully, Joshua got to be in the tent of meeting and near it a lot. He was confident of God's character, not only because he heard about it from Moses, but he, he was near God all the time. This is also when uh, he has one of his 
troubling moments. He gets jealous. God gives some of the elders of Israel the ability to go and speak his truth on behalf of him throughout the camp because there's between 1.2 and 2 million of them. They can't all hear Moses because they didn't have megaphones and even if they did, they would have needed more. But some of them start going further out than Joshua thought they were and he gets really upset and Moses confronts him and says, are you jealous? Do you remember the last time someone confronted you? And it was a little bit true. How'd you respond? We don't have a record of how Joshua responded directly in the moment to Moses, but we know he continued to worship and follow Moses. And then when Moses died, he continued to lead the people in practical and ritual purity and following and ritual. Because regardless of how he felt in the moment, he received that truth, which I think proves to us in some measure that he was humble. I'm sure not all of the time, like in that moment when he got all mad that these guys were going further to tell people about God than they thought he thought they were going to. Joshua was confident in God's character. When Joshua saw obstacles, he assumed that God would either make a way or that those obstacles would be part of the journey of the people of Israel. And listen, the story of Joshua is not a metaphor, but... We can appropriate all the New Testament teachings, especially about suffering and limitations and challenges, and see that it's the same God in the book of Joshua leading his people. When they see an obstacle, he either removes it or creates an opportunity for them to fall more in love with him, for them to understand their covenant, or they mess up and he punishes them, oftentimes worse than the nations that attack them. Joshua was confident in God's character. He interpreted obstacles through the lens of faith. He was in awe of God and God's power. This is challenging for us because we are to be in awe of God also. And I don't know about you, I sort of think it'd be easier if there was a pillar of smoke out there in the field, like the one that led the people of Israel, and then at night turned into a pillar of fire. You couldn't get too close because the presence of God was there. We now know The presence of God is everywhere, but we receive it by faith. People of Israel, though, responded just as doubtfully as we did. So perhaps the smoke and the fire would not help us as much as we think they would. And Joshua trusted in the promises of God. He had seen God promise to Moses and keep his word. He had seen God promise the nation of Israel and keep his word, and he trusted those. We have the same opportunity not to be like Joshua, That's not the goal. You're to be you. But to learn that confidence in God's character is good. The obstacles that we see can be interpreted through faith. Maybe not with a full explanation, this side of heaven, but they are to be interpreted through faith. There is a fear of God that is good. It's not you feeling scared It's not you being startled. It's in awe of what he did on your behalf. And then there's a trust in his promises. Joshua leads amidst evil. The longer I'm in ministry, the more I think that the stories that are so fun to tell kids are actually some of the most troubling stories in the scriptures. You know, oh, there are a lot of animals. That should be part of every Sunday school curriculum. Wait a minute. What was the purpose of the flood again? Genesis 6 through 8. And then we miss God's character because we just interpret it 
on our own. God's character is described clearly as one grieved by the evil. I think Exodus and Joshua are the most troubling books in the scripture with respect to the fact that we understand them. There are other books in the scripture that are troubling because we don't quite understand them. And that troubles us in a different way. But Exodus and Joshua show God restraining and eliminating evil. And if you are a Christian, I assume you have had trouble with these stories. And if you're a Christian who has not had trouble with these stories, I'm not sure you're reading very well. We should be troubled by these stories. My, my two favorite, it's not just the ESV study Bible, I also have a Reformation study Bible edited by Dallas Willard, Walter Brueggemann, Eugene Peterson, and Richard Foster. It's an incredible resource. And all of, I read both of everything that my two study Bibles said about Joshua this week. Maybe twice. And neither of them will say, here's the answer. It's not simple. It's not cut and dry. That God did say a few times, not every time, you will destroy all of those people and their animals and their stuff. If that doesn't bother you at all, I kind of encourage you to wrestle a little bit more with it. At the same time, we have some clues to understand how this could happen. God doesn't abide evil, and he will not forever abide evil. I'm going to do a very heated discussion with a Christian about this on Tuesday. Way more heated than it should have been. I was not wearing my mature pastor hat in the moment. I got all fired up. And the person was saying that the Canaanites were not given agency. It's not true. Starting from Genesis 15, and then dating, roughly, they had 430 years to stop exploiting people sexually, to stop murdering their children if they didn't want them in the name of their religion. One of our problems with this in the 21st century is there's no equivalent. There is no, to my knowledge, no widespread religion that is this violent and exploitative. And so we're like, well, gosh, does God hate all religions? No, that's not how, and that's, a, there's, that's a lot of discussions to have at another time. But there isn't a version of this, which is also a clue to some of God's uh, provisions for the nation of Israel that can trouble us. Because he says, don't intermarry, and yet we see lots of intermarriage. Well, how do we wrestle with that tension, which is what the scripture is inviting us into is attention. One of the most heroic people in the book of Joshua is a foreigner who marries into Israel and is then in the line of Jesus. Well, how does that square? Because you can intermarry if that person will leave the violent, evil, exploitative religion and come to a life-giving religion that can then bless all the world. I believe the first most important thing to understand about how God would command Israel to do this is he will not abide evil. And in the 21st century, 
especially where we live, enough of us can live lives where we are not in need, that it is hard for us to understand. This is about the first century or generation where we didn't understand that evil needs to be restrained and put away instinctively. In the thousands of years since this happened, most people understand this story because they've seen evil far beyond what we've ever seen. And a deeply harmed person needs to know God will not abide evil forever. It's essential to the understanding of the Christian gospel. And it's essential that we do not call evil okay. And it's not only the 430 years from Genesis 15 to the book of Joshua, it's the 25 years that they were in the wilderness. What we see in Rahab, the story in the middle of Joshua that I'll come back to in a minute, they knew the reputation of the nation of Israel. They had 25 years of data about their gods versus the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And the data was very conclusive. And so they have an opportunity to repent, and some do. I'll say one other thing about the challenge of um, the extermination of these cities. Does God always say that? If he does not always say that, then we get to do a little bit of war, meaning destroy them and their animals and their stuff, like cups. If he doesn't always say that, then what's the difference? So he doesn't say that about Sihon, the book of Numbers. Israel tries to be very peaceful with them. They respond poorly. It doesn't go well. That's a king, but a king of the Amorites? Yeah, thanks. I was like, who would know this? <laughs> Obscure numbers back. It doesn't, it, God does not command the same thing with Og, who's another king of the Amorites. God does not command this with Egypt. Remember, they got to take their stuff, which the Egyptians were happy to give them so that they would get out of Egypt. So why would he say it differently about these Canaanite tribes? Because of how evil and how much the evil had permeated every aspect of their society. And if that doesn't make you feel entirely better about Joshua, I'm so glad that you have read your Bible with care. Every book teaches us something about God and his heart and redemption. No book teaches everything. Every book is just about helped and informed by other books. Genesis teaches us that God is creator. Exodus, that he's a rescuer. Leviticus, that he knows our longing is to be with him and gives us ways to do that. Numbers shows him as a caring parent. And if you tried to read Numbers and you got lost, it's hard to skim into the middle of the book and then it gets really, 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 really interesting. I'm not saying genealogies don't matter. Don't tweet that, you know. Deuteronomy shows us how patient he is. You know what Deuteronomy means, like the word? Second law. Parents, how tired are we of repeating ourselves? God doesn't tire of it. Even when he chooses to discipline his people, he does not tire of reminding us of the life we can live in him. 
trusting him with our hearts and decisions. Joshua shows him alongside his people. Joshua leads amidst evil and humility. After they destroy the first city, Jericho, again, one of the stories that we kind of over-celebrate, in my opinion, uh, one of the people keeps all the stuff. Wasn't supposed to do that. His name was Achan. What does Joshua do? The same thing that we do when we're caught in a problem or sin. We pause. We seek the Lord, whether it was our sin or not. We continue to worship. And then to humbly be ourselves with our role in the world. In the middle of Joshua, though plenty of it is exciting and um, plenty of it's troubling, there are lots of lists again. And if you're reading Joshua this week and you want to skim those, I give you permission. You didn't need it. You've skimmed what you want to do in novels and fiction and nonfiction in your Bible for sure. But when you're skimming, don't forget that this is God reminding again that structure is good. Structure is part of freedom. Structure of in this case, land, which for us is structure of, of the, uh, the command to be generous with what he's given us, knowing that what he's given us is his anyway. And so being generous with it is not only a move of life, it's not only a resistance to our tendencies to greed, it's also a remembering, an active remembering that he is sovereign. But the structures in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua remind us that all is his, remind us to be generous, and remind us to regularly worship because it is good for our souls to treat God as God. I think these are the two best generations of the history of Israel. Joshua's generation and the one after. We'll see next week in the book of Judges and then in a different way, zeroing in on a specific family in the book of Ruth. Pretty quickly, the people start forgetting. And one of the main reasons that the people forget what God did and his promises and his commands is they stop going to the feast days and they stop regularly worshiping with the entire nation of Israel. But Joshua's generation, led by him, continues to worship because they knew it was good. And then there's a very surprising, humble character right in the middle of Joshua named Rahab. You might remember her from the genealogy of Jesus. The spies come into the city of Jericho. You know, the nation of Israel is formidable and their reputation is incredible because of God. But all they had were spears and slingshots and bows and arrows. And this is a walled city. So the mayor of Jericho, who I think is the most at fault for what happened, I think he should have led his people to repentance. Somebody should have grabbed this guy and been like, we're not, we're not Egypt, and look what happened to them. Anyway, spies come into the city, and Rahab a prostitute, which she almost certainly did not choose because of the exploitative culture. Still true today, but more profoundly true then. Brings them in and says, I have heard the reputation of Israel and Israel's God. I'm summarizing. 
And if you will save me and my extended family, I will make sure that the military doesn't capture you. She lies to the military and sends them in the wrong direction. And the spies get out and they tell her to drop a um, red cord outside of her window. And listen, probably the most aggressive thing any of my seminary professors said is fascinating. Here's why the cord was red. Ready? Everybody ready? Because it was red. <laughs> when, we meta- when we turn the scriptures into a metaphor, when the scriptures don't invite us to turn them into a metaphor, we forget that these things happened in space and time. And God was rescuing into his family a brave and humble woman who on behalf of her family and out of wise survival instincts said, I want to worship the God who's powerful and good, not the one that's exploitative and violent and cares nothing for children. She marries into the line of Judah we don't know when, we just, she's just listed later. I think her husband's name was Nashorn. I can't turn to all the pages of the Bible at the same time. And similarly to Joshua, she responds with humility before what she knows of God. Joshua leads amidst evil, his own and others' humility and community. Cannot read any of these stories, not Exodus, not Numbers, not Joshua, without understanding that when we act in love and in righteousness as God defines it, it has a positive effect on the community. And when we sin, whether they know it or not, it negatively affects the community. That is still true. And I don't say that as a caution. I say that as good news because it's so hard to choose righteousness. And yet when we do it, when we choose to tell the truth, when we choose to be generous, when we choose to use kind words, even if they're harsh, rather than the harshest ones possible, when we resist envy, which might take us, we might have to do that once an hour. We're blessing the community that we're with through the Holy Spirit regardless of whether they know it or not. Joshua reminds us of something that we know, but we get to remember actively. God doesn't explain everything about his plan and invites us into the tension of trusting him while we're troubled by the conquest of Canaan and perhaps the Exodus and plenty of other things in the scripture. At the same time, he is trustworthy. We could hold all of our troubles with the story of Joshua in one hand and then ask the question, is God trustworthy? And the answer is yes. I hope that similarly, you're confident in the character of God. I hope that by grace and prayer and community, when obstacles, limitations, sicknesses, challenges of employment come before you, you can view those through the lens of faith which is not trite and doesn't say, you need to be happy after that happened, but does say you can be confident in God. And I'm not sure what that's going to look like if you're a friend. I'm just going to sit with you while we consider it. But the obstacles of all of life 
can be viewed through the lens of faith, and that is one of the sweet gifts of the gospel. I hope similarly you are in awe of God and his power and that you trust his promises, not only to save you and call you his own, but to follow him in this life, for that is our only opportunity to flourish. Would you pray with me? Father, we trust you and ask that you help us to trust you. Perhaps similarly to the way Rahab and Joshua trusted you, perhaps differently as you have made all of us different. Jesus, we love you and ask that you empower us to love you easily with our minds and decisions, with our work and rest this day and this week. Holy Spirit, we are so thankful that you indwell us and that you'll never leave us or forsake us. Give our minds and our very being the comfort of that truth and reality for all those who trust in you. Amen.